Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, the enforcer at Small Business. Tax Notes legal reporter Nathan Richmond sat down with Eric Hilton in his office. Hilton is the head of the Small Business Self-Employed Division at the IRS. Nate, welcome back to the studio. Thanks for having me. For those who may not know, what is Hilton's role as SBSE commissioner? So Hilton is the head of the business operating division at the IRS with jurisdiction over about 57 million taxpayers, including the self-employed and businesses with assets under $10 million, plus employment, excise, and gift and estate tax returns. So what did you talk about? We discussed employment tax and high-income non-filer visits, fraud referrals, and SBSE's use of data analytics. All right, let's go to that interview. We're here with SBSE Commissioner Eric Hilton. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. I appreciate it. Well, let's just get started. How are you settling into your new role after a long time at CIA? Actually, it's been great. It's been approximately six months since I've taken over the position of SBSC Commissioner. It's been an exciting journey. I want to thank the Commissioner for giving me this opportunity. I spent the last 26 years within criminal investigation and the last position being the Deputy Chief for CI and overseeing major tax fraud investigations, international corruption, cyber crime, terrorist financing, money laundering. So there was a lot of opportunities there and so I felt really fortunate that the commissioner asked me to come over and be the SBSC commissioner and it's first time in history that Deputy Chief for CI has come over to be the commissioner for one of the major bots. So feel very fortunate. And it's been six months, a lot of great people here within SBSC, excellent skill set, seasoned professionals. I'm truly pleased at the opportunity to lead this great organization. A few more people to keep track of, though. So in CI, we had about 3,000. I have 20,000 here. I affectionately used to call the CI workforce the mighty 3,000, so I have to say the enormous 20,000 here. (laughs) But it's a great team, great team. So what's the biggest difference you're seeing now that you're on the civil side rather than the criminal side? Well, my coming over to the civil side, one of the main purposes is bringing a more of a laser focus effort as to the enforcement initiatives and strategies. I bring also an opportunity to even bridge the gap between CI and the other operating divisions. The biggest factor I see is the portfolio for SBSC. I mean, it's huge. It's when I think about 57 million taxpayers. And so SBSC is responsible for all of the collection activity, employment tax, corporations under 10 million, excise tax, Bank Secrecy Act. There's a number of activities within collection, just auditing for examination. So when I look at their huge responsibility that SBSC has, and many times when you're thinking about the IRS, you think about SBSC and that face-to-face interaction. So, so it's been a great opportunity learning a great deal, going back to the SBSC mission and thinking about that mission. And so we're here really to help taxpayers understand their tax obligation, but also we're here to help 
help taxpayers meet their tax obligation. So if you think about that skills of justice there, we're there for service as well as enforcement. So kind of bring both of those aspects to SBSC. You mentioned employment tax. I've been hearing about employment tax from DOJ, CI, and various parts of SBSC for several years now. What's new in employment tax? I'll start off here by asking you a question to that question. What's your favorite number? 42. 42. So I say your favorite number should be 95 or 96 because the IRS is responsible for collecting 95 or 96% of all the revenue for this country. And I think we look at that responsibility and recognize the importance of the IRS for the country. And so I like to highlight that fact in thinking of that. When you reference employment tax, 72% of that is employment tax. So what is new? And the major factor that is new is our revenue officer compliance visits. And what we're looking at and looking at those factors in visiting and using data analytics and developing heat maps into our underserved geographical communities in which we have a group of revenue officers come together and go to a particular city in which we have individuals who are late in filing their employment tax or paying their employment tax. It's been hugely successful. The key factor, I think, with that is we communicate, we publicize to the local media, national media, that we're going to that particular state. So we've been to Texas, Wisconsin, Arkansas, in which we have some areas within those particular states where we have limited visibility. So it's been hugely successful. It's a huge deterrent message because you don't know if we're coming to knock on your door or your neighbor's door. So it's truly important and it's a new initiative for us. So that's one of the major factors that is new. Where are you going next? Still working on that. Still working on what's next, but we will let you know in advance where we're going next. We'll get back to the interview in a moment, but first, here's tax analyst, president, and CEO, Kara Griffith, with a word on an upcoming event. Kara? Thanks, Dave. I'm excited to announce a major anniversary for Tax Analysts. It's our golden year as the organization turns 50. Tax Analysts has gone from humble beginnings to becoming a leading provider of tax information and a forum for even-handed debate. As part of our 50th anniversary, we will be hosting a gala dinner at the National Portrait Gallery on April 29th in Washington, D.C. We will honor former IRS commissioner and longtime leader in the tax world, Larry Gibbs and discuss the future of tax policy with U.S. Treasury Assistant Secretary Dave Cotter. We hope you will join us in celebrating our first half century. To become a sponsor or purchase tickets, visit events.taxanalyst.org slash 50th anniversary. Well, visits have been publicized very recently in another area as well. You're visiting high-income non-filers. Tell me about that. So here again, I'll make a quick point that I should have made on the employment tax area. When we look at employment tax, $81 billion represents the tax gap for employment tax. And so I wanted to make that point there. So it's obviously a strong priority for us. High income non-filer is another important point. And we look at $31 billion associated with non-filers. So here again, it is an important priority for us. With using the same methodology that we've used regarding the revenue officer's compliance visits, we're looking at high-income non-filers, individuals who are making over $100,000 and have not filed 
We use data analytics and using a heat map as well for that to visit taxpayers across the country. We've received quite a bit of publicity associated with that, which we're pleased to because part of the thought is for taxpayers to come in and pay their taxes that are due. There's a number of options that we have on irs.gov that gives the opportunity for taxpayers that are unable to pay the balance in full. So this is just a great opportunity for us to reflect that even no matter what income level you're at, the IRS will be addressing that non-compliance issue. So you've mentioned heat maps a couple of times. Can you explain that for our audience? So heat maps, what you have is as you look at the data analytics and it tells you where we should concentrate our efforts, whether it's from an employment tax standpoint or a high-end non-filer standpoint, it'll give you an area in which we have a high concentration of those individuals. And so that it allows us to be a lot more efficient with our time and efforts with our resources. It's a great opportunity for us in speaking of data analytics, looking at that and that allows us an opportunity to use our enforcement tools in a very efficient manner. So both this and the employment tax uses, and we'll get to this later, some of the easement and micro-captive initiatives, especially the micro-captive, these sound quite a bit like some of LBNI's campaigns. Is that the same sort of process you're going about, or were those campaigns sort of a comparator or a previous uh, bit of experience to draw upon for these sorts of initiatives? I'll start here. One of the cornerstones of our overall compliance strategy for SBSC is communication. Everything that we are doing, we want to be as transparent as possible. We want the public to know that we are addressing non-filers. We are addressing employment taxes. We are addressing micro-captive insurance. We are addressing syndicated easements. Very issues that we have. When I was appointed to this position, one of the major priorities that I had is that we will try to communicate as much as possible. I bring that, I think, expertise from CI as well and bringing that to SBSC because here again, as I speak about the skill set of SBSC employees, the seasoned employees, they're doing fabulous work. And I want the American public to know the work that SBSC is doing, but also recognizing the fact that we are doing services as well as enforcement. So, We've discussed four programs. Any others that you want to highlight or perhaps anything coming soon? We have quite a few things coming soon, but I'll leave you with that teaser. <laughs> so I'm a big fan of teasers, but uh, I, could, I could use a little more information. When should I be looking out for these? We should be making some announcements within the next two weeks on a new area that we want to focus on that some of the things that we talked about, but a little bit more of an emphasis. You mentioned earlier bridging the gap between SBSE and CI and civil and CI in general, as well as the communication issue. One area that connects civil side and criminal side is the uh, National Fraud Program. That's the group within SBSE that reviews potential fraud cases and directs them where they need to go. We haven't heard too much about changes to that program since I think I last heard about it in the summer of 2018. Do you have any update on that program? I'll start off by saying this. I think it's, it's critically important that we have a robust, invisible enforcement strategy. And I will lean back towards the mission again, SBSC, and that we're here to help taxpayers understand their tax obligation as well as meet. Fraud is just one part of that overall conversation, that overall discourse is an important aspect of that. 
So one of the things that I have in conjunction with the commissioner have launched a new initiative called Unlocking Fraud. The, you are the key. And this was an initiative for all of our employees in which we started off with a video to every compliance employee expressing our support for fraud development, fraud detection. I think that's been hugely successful. We have increased a number of our fraud awareness activities. One aspect that has changed is that we're looking to have our younger or less experienced employees receive fraud training a lot earlier in their training so that they can help identify the various badges of fraud quickly, whether it's the first indications of fraud or firm indications of fraud. So I think those are important aspects. But we're also looking at a number of just maybe potentially operational barriers that may be in play for us to identify fraud. It is hugely an important area, not only for the service as a whole. I'll leave you with another teaser that we have an announcement and a thought coming soon that's going to also impact and reflect what we're doing differently as it relates to fraud. This seems like an obvious point to what particular lessons from CI on the receiving end of fraud referrals, how to find potential referrals now that you're on the civil side. Great question. I think the first part is increased communication. Increased communication with the civil functions as well as with CI on just what makes a good case. So we're having a session in a few weeks to think like a criminal with our civil and criminal aspects and just generically talk about the different aspects of fraud. So that's gonna be one of the first things that we do. The second, I think what I recognize is the fact that really increase the educational components of what fraud is for our civil employees. But the bigger factor that I want to emphasize is we're looking at criminal fraud, but we're also looking at civil fraud. I think that is sometimes get lost in the conversation. It is an important factor as you think about civil fraud and ensuring that we pursue that when that's appropriate as well. It makes me go back to her statement because overall thinking about SBSC, I look at it and I talk about being a robust and visible enforcement strategy, but we think about appropriate enforcement is true customer service for the customers that are doing it correctly. So we really want to emphasize that. As a result of any of the changes that have gone on so far, have you seen any sorts of different results? I checked the most recent CI annual report and we're still at that 7%, though of course it's rather recent, any changes for that? It takes time. I think we, at this point, don't have any figures to provide to you, but recognizing that we are making incremental changes, which is gonna take time to see the results, but we will see some changes. You've mentioned data analytics a couple of times, and when I knew you in your prior position, you mentioned it a whole lot more. Does SBSE have any of its own special programs the way CI used to, or is most of this partnership with the data division? So I would be remiss to say that SBSE's data analytics capability is just as good as CI's, I would say. 
and I expressed to the commissioner before is that I was tremendously impressed with the activity that SBSC is involved in in their research office. Obviously, we want to use data analytics to become a lot more efficient with our enforcement tools. We are looking at it from a number of different perspectives. So I start off with our return prepare program using data analytics to do risk analysis as to the most egregious return preparers that we have. Really a strong formula and algorithms to use and models there. But what is key to that factor is not only are we identifying return preparers that are egregious in filing bad returns for individuals, but they're also looking at them and seeing if they're identifying and reflecting whether they have filed returns. So there is another connection there because those are excellent cases for criminal investigation because you have an individual who is filing bad returns for individuals as well as for themselves and have not filed. So that's an important point, so we're using that there. We're also looking at the gig economy as well and using data analytics to look at whether it's from a non-filing, underreporting, those factors, and maybe potentially sending out some soft notices to individuals to reflect their filing requirements as it relates to the gig economy, which is obviously an emerging area for us. So those are a couple of areas that we are looking at. Obviously, I express we're heavy into the non-filer initiative and using data analytics in that area as well. We've a couple of times touched on micro-captive insurance. What is SBSE doing in this area? I'll start off by working very closely with our partners in large business and international as it relates to micro-captive. There's a lot of conversation, a lot of presentations that we've done on micro-captives, but I'll touch on a couple of topics related to micro-captive. So in starting with micro-captive in September, we started a program and individuals who could come in and settle their limited time settlement and 200 or so taxpayers associated with that. So that is moving along pretty smoothly. Also, the other factor I would say is that when you look at abusive schemes, I think we've talked a lot about micro-captive and talked about syndicated conservation easements. The point that I want to emphasize there, if it sounds too good to be true, then it is. For micro-captive, the courts, we've had three court rulings that reflected that many of these abusive micro-captive transactions, it was not insurance. So taxpayers should go to an independent advisor to really look at those transactions. But the key factor in both of those abusive transactions, I believe, are promoters. Promoters who are advertising these abusive schemes and some are reflecting that you could get three, four, five times your investment. And I would ask many taxpayers and I would express to many practitioners that listen to your show, does that sound correct? I'll flip into syndicated conservation easements as well. We have seen appraisers who have appraised property and have the property has gone up 2,000%. So you ask yourself the question, and I say my CI spidey sense goes off in a sense that that seems like a potential fraudulent activity. And obviously another area that I'm looking at and thinking on those are some cases that should go over to CI for fraud referrals. 
You've given one example of a interesting egregious fact pattern for conservation easements. Understanding that you probably can't say anything specific, any other interesting egregious facts you've seen? Another pretty egregious fact that was used, there was a taxpayer that thought of um, the property had dismounted his view or different things of that nature. So then you had a drone to oversee and look at that and just shows that it was flat land. So therefore you have an inflated appraisal. So those are just situations that taxpayers should understand. Very similar to what we say during this year for filing season, there's red flags that individuals should watch out for as far as promoters, return preparers, like I said before, if it sounds too good to be true, then it is. Other than this red flags to look for, do you have any other comment for somebody who is looking for good versions of these transactions, what to look out for so that they can feel comfortable that they're not inching towards something that might be fraudulent? I would first say taxpayers should do their homework. There's plenty of legitimate micro-captive insurance activity there. I mean, right offhand, I think about the farming industry, think that's been appropriately used. But, and I, and I speak from my CI days, well, you have tax law and there are individuals who will try to abuse it. And so I probably would express to taxpayers to do their homework and continually do their due diligence. You've mentioned some, and mentioned before, the idea that there are some good fraud referrals here potentially. Have you found any yet? We're always pursuing fraud referral. It's part of the overall conversation and, and when appropriate. I think it is some that we have, but what I want individuals to understand is only when we're going to send fraud referrals when it's appropriate, but it should be a part of the conversation, not the conversation. So yes, we have seen some and we're pleased about that. We continue to see some. So in 18 to 24 months, we might be seeing some indictment. We only hope. <laughs> Have you had any conversations with Brendan O'Dell, the scheme czar, for want of a better word, yet? No, I haven't, but I plan on meeting with him very soon. I think it's an excellent opportunity for the service to look at promoters as a whole, as I expressed, when we look at these various abusive schemes, Critically, if we address promoters, I think we'll be able to help taxpayers in the long run because they will see that various promoters will be investigated from an examination standpoint and some will also be prosecuted for their abusive activities. The enforcement focus at the IRS at the moment has been a subject of conversation, particularly conversations involving the national taxpayer advocate and the former national taxpayer advocate. Are you engaging with TAS as part of this emphasis? Well, I think the thought, as I express, I bring a laser focus attention to our enforcement strategy, but also recognizing that we're balancing our service and enforcement as a idea or an initiative that we're just launching as well, just from a service standpoint, is that we are have a new initiative called Hearing All Voices. 
and this is an initiative in which we are working with 15 to 16 different communities across the country that English is a second language for them and we know that they want to comply with the tax laws so we're going and having half-day educational sessions as well as listening sessions with them so that we may hear how we can provide better service for them as well. So you have that balance of service and enforcement. We have a great relationship with the acting taxpayer advocate now. We discuss a number of issues that we have, but I think there's always going to be the balance between service and enforcement. Have you had a chance to meet the very recently? No, I have not. I have not. Uh, that's, I think it was just announced this week. Yesterday. <laughs> Yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> What is the uh, current state of staffing at SBAC? You mentioned the 20,000. How does that fit with where it should be and where you're hoping to go? So last year in FY19, SBSC hired approximately 3,000 new employees throughout the organization. We plan on doing some limited hiring this year as well. So staffing-wise, we always could use more staffing to address many of the non-compliant issues that we have. But I think it's critically important that we look at where we hire. Just recently, we had an announcement for over seven to 800 individuals that will be handling our customer service calls. Then these are our collections calls. Part of the strategy there is to address individuals who owe doing the initial stages of them owing and being able to help them address their tax balances at that time. So that's uh, roughly 19 different cities across the country. So that is a great opportunity for us to go in certain communities as well. Are you in net growth for staffing? Not yet. Attrition is still a significant issue. So we'll see. We'll see. We've been hearing about some sorts of new skills that you're looking for in some types of particularly revenue officers, but anything to tell us about that? I will say that we're always looking at a number of different skill sets that we need because I look at the revenue agents and revenue officers as civil enforcement investigators and using those skills. But a skill set that we haven't talked about a lot and I think we need are data scientists. I think it's critically important, very much similar to my experience in CI, is marrying up data scientists with the subject matter experts of revenue officers and revenue agents and really showing what does non-compliance look like as it relates to employment tax, as it relates to micro-captive, and so that we can develop algorithm models to address those significant non-compliance issues. Have you experienced or heard of any high-level attempts to influence particular audit or exam decisions about any sort of specific taxpayers, yay or nay? No, no. Well, thank you very much for your time. I want to thank Tax Notes for recognizing me and some of the efforts I've done as one of the federal tax persons of the year. I would have to admit that I was really shocked <laughs> by the award, but thank you very much for the recognition. Our pleasure. And now, coming attractions. Each week we preview commentary that will be appearing in the Tax Notes magazines. I'm joined by Content and Acquisitions Manager Faye McRae. Faye, what will you have for us? Thank you, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, David Higgins examines disputed ownership funds. Lee Watkins writes that utility companies effectively manage their tax deductions for tax planning and cash tax management purposes. In Tax Notes State, Michael Knoll and Ruth Mason discuss Steiner v. Utah. 
Sylvia Dion, discusses the significance of the decision in Citrix System Incorporated. In Tax Notes International, Sven Eric Barish and Yannick Barbu discuss Germany's newly introduced R&D tax incentives. Tom Davies considers the need for the United Kingdom to be competitive post-Brexit. And on the opinions page, Robert Goulder asks whether the coronavirus pandemic will necessitate further rounds of fiscal stimulus, including tax cuts. You can read all that and a lot more in the March 9th editions of Tax Notes Federal, State, and International. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com slash podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.